Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. Well, good evening. Um, Today is Good Friday, and we gather together with thousands of people probably in the city of Chicago, and we're all gathering throughout the day to celebrate this day, Good Friday. We're gathering with millions of people around the world, all of us professing to be followers of Christ, and, and we come tonight to this Good Friday service and as we do, I wonder, you know, is it a Good Friday for you? It's, it's somewhat ambiguous as to like where the name or why we call it Good Friday. You know, some say it used to be called God's Friday and they kind of added an extra O in there or whatever. But it's, it's kind of ambiguous. And tonight maybe we come with that ambiguity and we wonder too, you know, God, how is tonight a Good Friday? Um, you know, how has this year been for you? At, at the, the onset of January, it's only been a few months now, and it's gone fast, and, and I wonder, has this been a good year for you? Uh, maybe it has been, and we rejoice and we praise God for His grace in that, but maybe you feel you know, kind of alone Sunday mornings when everyone else is jumping around and singing, oh, happy day, you're kind of standing there, and there's a disconnect. You know, per- perhaps today would better be called Black Friday, if it weren't for the fact that here in America we've already... Uh, dubbed another commercialized holiday with that same name, but Good Good Friday. Now, I realize that maybe some of you are kind of like, uh-oh, what, what's he doing here, like this sperman, and he's going to make us feel all mopey-dopey and depressed, and that's that's not my intent. My My intent, what I'm hoping to do tonight, is that we can be honest. To be honest and acknowledge that at times there's a lot of chaotic brokenness in our experience here on earth. The theologian Walter Brueggemann, he says, regarding the laments in the Bible, um, a church that goes on singing happy songs in the face of the raw reality of uh, life is doing something very different from what the Bible itself does. Now, he's not suggesting that because we live in a broken world that we can't rejoice and be happy, but he's suggesting that so often... We don't leave room in our theological framework, our experience, to be honest. To be honest about the fact that our world is broken. Because, you know, if we do, we fear that, you know, that shows a lack of faith on our part. But we do live in a very broken world, don't we? And I think that it's important that we learn how to respond. You know, earlier this week, in my hometown back in Canada, um, there was a house party of university students, and they were gathering to celebrate the end of the school year and the start of summer. Um, it wasn't an out-of-control party. It was pretty low-key. Neighbors hardly even noticed that you know, there was like about 30 kids gathered there. Um, and so they, they started out inside, outside. They went inside, and everything was fine. Until 1.20 a.m., 911 dispatchers received a call from inside the house. Chaos has unfolded. One of the party-goers has pulled a knife and has stabbed five of the students. By 6.30 a.m., the suspect is apprehended and all five victims are pronounced dead. Now, as the perpetrator, he's, he's identified, it's pointed out that he has no prior encounters with the law. He received excellent grades and he was set to begin law school in the fall. In a press release yesterday, his parents described him as a great kid, full of love, kindness. He had respect for others. 
He was active in sports, raised money for charities, and was active in the community, and he was somebody that we would call a good kid. And yet, on Tuesday, something happened. Things seemed okay, and yet this, this brokenness, this, this, there was this fracture in the experience of these people. His parents, they said, we are shocked and devastated, and we're trying to make sense of how this happened and what happened. And to the families of those affected, they said, like you, we struggle to understand what happened. We will never recover from this. We hope someday to have answers as to why this happened. Regardless, this won't bring back the victims, but we would give anything to do just that. Today is not a good Friday for those affected by this tragedy. And for those affected by innumerable other forms of suffering around the world and in our own city and in our own lives. As we think about the crucifixion story, it's evident that for a great number of people, Jesus' death meant that it was not a good Friday for them either. Imagine the anguish of Jesus' mother. She would have been torn up inside by her son's death. What thoughts would have been racing through the minds of the disciples as they watched this man that they had followed for the last three years suffer so immensely? You know, we can imagine that they wondered, you know, is he a fraud? We thought that he was the Messiah. So how are we today supposed to respond to the suffering in our world, to the suffering in the lives of those around us and in our own experience? Do, you know, do we fast forward to Romans 8.29 and we realize you know, everything is going to work out okay for those who love God? And that's true. But in the moment, does it relieve the heartache in the midst of utter darkness? How do we make sense of all of this? If we live long enough, we will encounter a great deal of heartbreak. When we begin to think about it, our world has drifted a far ways away from the shalom, the peace and wholeness of original creation. And the fact that we are so troubled by the suffering in our world speaks to the fact that we know deep inside that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. So how does scripture address this reality of suffering and pain? I think a great place to start is where Jesus' life ends. On the cross, he's about to die, having endured a great deal of pain leading up to him being put on the cross, and then the excruciating suffering he encountered on it. How does he respond? Matthew 27:46 says that around three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry echoes this 22nd Psalm, where we're going to be focusing our time today. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, I encourage you to turn there now. And as we do, we're going to look at how the psalmist, in this case David, responds to the suffering. We're going to see that he responds with a lament. Uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, he's a, a theologian, and he wrote about uh, laments uh, that a, a lament at its heart is giving voice to the suffering that accompanies deep loss. Lament is not about the suffering. Lament is not concerning the suffering. Lament goes beyond our tears to voice the suffering. And as we look at Psalm 22, we see a great example of a biblical lament 
Here, David is experiencing some dire circumstance. The text doesn't go into this explicitly. It doesn't explain uh, what he's going through exactly, but we quickly hear the desperation in his voice too as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, yet I have no rest. God, why? Here we see the first element of lament. God, God, why? We too wonder, you know, why did these university students have to suffer the way that they did? Why do their families have to endure their loss? Why do people lose their jobs? Why are we diagnosed with diseases? Why do our parents get divorced? Why are there so many people without a place to live? Why is it that our, our justice system seems to be anything but just? Why did a ship of 300 high school students capsize this week? Why? As we observe the psalm writer's questioning of God, we note a couple things. Commentators explain that the way in which God is addressed here is very personal. It would be appropriate to say that, you know, he's, he's crying out to Father. Father, why? You know, there's this relationship. John Calvin observes that in wrestling with themselves, the psalm writer, on the one hand, discovers the weakness of the flesh, but on the other hand, gives evidence of their faith. There are elements of doubt. The why. God, I don't, I don't understand. I can't perceive your hand in this. But there's also evidence that he has faith, that the fact that he cries out to God at all. In the height of his despair, the psalm writer runs to his father, for who else can he turn to? His endearment shows us that there is an established relationship. This isn't just his last resort to some, you know, a faraway deity that David is finally running to. No, this is his heavenly father. Verses 3 through 8 say, You are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him now since he takes pleasure in him. Again, we see that David knows this God. He acknowledges that this is the God of his fathers, the God of Israel. He's the faithful God. Yet in this moment, God seems very far away. But David has heard about and seen God deliver his people from difficulty. He's seen God show up in his own life had times passed, but now he looks around and he, he, he sees God maybe being faithful to those around him. But in the midst of the people of Israel, David feels alone and abandoned. Have you ever felt this way? Do you feel this way now? Where God seems so distant from you, if your experience has been anything like mine, you would probably answer, yeah, I've been there or that is where I am. Sometimes we can look, look around the church and it seems like God is showing up for everyone else. You know, he has a word for this person or he's answered a prayer for that person. But then you stand there and you wonder, is he still there? Is he still at work? Is he still in control? David then feels 
the sting further. As others look at him and mock him, David, you've been faithful to this God of yours, and what good has that done you? David, the fact that you're suffering probably means you screwed things up. God is judging you. Where is your God now? If he really takes pleasure in you, why has this happened to you? The world at times mocks us and they look at us and they say, your God is dead. If God was good, then why is there all of this suffering? In the midst of God's absence, or seeming absence, we wonder what meaning is left. Walter Storff writes that in our suffering there is this shattering of meaning. For the believer, the meaning of life is tied up in her experience and understanding of God. Now suddenly there's a rip in her whole fabric of meaning. So the believer cries to God. Who else to cry to? For deliverance from the threat of meaninglessness. Why, oh God, why is this happening? What sense does this make? We thought that you were good, powerful, and knowledgeable. We thought we understood your ways. What is happening? Where are you, God? I cannot discern your hand in this darkness. As we look at Psalm 22, we see that David questions his Heavenly Father. God, what sense does this make? We too at times of trouble can run to the bosom of our Heavenly Father and ask why. God, I know you desire good for us, for this world, so then why is there horrible pain? Why is this darkness persisting? This is not how things are supposed to be. If we jump down in your Bibles to verse 19, we notice the next elements of lament. After David pleads for God to give some meaning to the situation, he asks God to deliver him from the situation. He says, But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from those who threaten me with swords. Save my life from the power of wild dogs that threaten me. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Help. Help me. Help us. In the verses leading up to this cry for help, David explains how he's feeling to God. His circumstances leave him feeling vulnerable and alone, like a wild animal is chasing him, like he's surrounded and they're circling, edging closer, showing their teeth. He can feel their deep, menacing growls within his being. He feels broken like a shattered clay pot. To really lament requires that we be honest. And this can be really difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward, especially when other people are around, especially when other people aren't in the same place as we are. And we wonder, you know, are, are we even allowed to tell God that we're doubting him? Is it okay to tell him that none of this makes sense? Is it okay to ask him to take it away? Isn't that a sign that we don't have faith? If we voice our doubts and questions, that doesn't seem to be the case in the text. No faith at all would have us stuck hopelessly, believing that there is nowhere to turn and no one to cry to. But faith. Faith runs to God. Our Heavenly Father, holding on to at least the slimmest hope that God is still there, and as we run to God, we ask Him to save us, to deliver us from this thing that is so unbearable at times. The final elements of lament may prove to be the hardest. 
And it may take us time to get to that place where we can fully do it. But it's crucial. In verse 22, David says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. This is the yet. We see in the beginning of the psalm, David asks God why. Then in verses 19 to 21, we see him crying to God to save him. And finally, we see that he says, Yet I will praise you. In the midst of David's suffering, he musters up the last ounce of trust that he has. God, I will still praise you. I will still trust you. In the midst of David's suffering, um, he turns to God and he holds on in faith. Walter Sturf again helps explain this for us. He says, The yet is an expression of the endurance of faith. It is a praiseful accounting of God's gracious actions in the past and accounting thus for the grounds of faith now. Yet I will praise you. You know, this is reminiscent of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace because they remain faithful to God. In Daniel 3, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar, he mocks them and he says, Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? They reply, If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace. And he can rescue us from your power. But even if he does not rescue us, we will still worship only him. So the yet, it looks, it looks back at the past. It looks back and recalls God's faithfulness. It looks back on the ten years of God's faithfulness to our church. It looks back and it remembers that God has healed in the past. It looks back and it recalls the word or that promise that God's spoken to us in the past. It fondly remembers that season where God felt so near and that there wasn't a doubt in our minds of his existence and of his goodness. It looks to the past and then it looks ahead to the future with hope that God will again show up. Now this doesn't downplay or mean to cover up the circumstances of the present and the suffering that we see in the world and that we experience in our own lives. It cries to God for understanding. It begs God for help. And then here, the yet, it holds on in faith. In the midst of our suffering, God's faithfulness in the past serves as ground for faith in the present. God, we've seen you at work in the past. And though we have no understanding of why this pain persists, and we long for you to make this right, but even if that doesn't happen immediately, we will still call you God. We will still trust that you are good and we may doubt. We may have a hard time doing it. And so together we say, yet our faith will endure. Now again, I acknowledge that maybe you're not facing a time of trouble or difficulty in your own life right now. Yet still, even if it's not a personal affliction that you're facing, we can still acknowledge the broken state of our world and the desperate need for a Savior. Where school shootings, unfair court rulings, pension cuts, foreclosures, the trafficking of children and murders uh, in the city remind us that this isn't how things should be. 
And as we look at how the biblical writers respond with this lament, we too come to God with our brokenness, with the brokenness of our families, with the brokenness of those around us, and we wonder, God, give us meaning. Why is this happening? We wonder how God will make it right, and we we say, and we pray, and we ask, and we plead, God, make this right. Take that which is so broken, take that which so desperately needs your grace, and do something with it. God, show up, please. We've seen you in the past, and that's where the yet comes in. We've seen you in the past show up in mighty ways, and we're asking and we're begging you to show up in this circumstance, at this time, and our faith will endure regardless, because you are the faithful, the faithful one. We're going to transition to a time of communion, and I want to give you time to respond and to reflect. If you're going through a time right now where God's hand seems hard to perceive, where worries and anxieties of your situation keep you from sleeping, I want to give you time with God to go to Him as your loving Father and admit where you're at, how you're honestly feeling. I'm going to give you permission to respond as the psalmist does and ask God why. To ask God to make some sense of this. Then, ask God to show up. Ask Him for deliverance. And as we do, and as you're ready, move towards the yet. Now keep in mind that this isn't some magic formula that will fix everything. We're warned that lament, to lament is to risk living with one's deepest questions unanswered. Lament gives a voice to our pain. Rather than letting it fester, fester, pressured within us, it brings it to the surface. And perhaps this will help you to move towards healing. Perhaps this will help you to move towards grace. Perhaps this will move you towards a place of hope. Walter Storff writes, Therefore, I join with the psalmist in lament. I voice my suffering naming it and owning it. I cry out, I cry for deliverance. Deliver us, O God, from the suffering. Restore us and make us whole. On this Good Friday, we look back at Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, why? And we stand with the disciples likewise, and we too wonder why. We look to our suffering Savior, our suffering God, And we wonder, I thought that he was the answer to our problems. I thought that he was going to save us. I thought that God was with us. Now, our hope hangs on a tree. We see the paths of suffering and sin and injustice converge on him, and we don't fully understand. And we say, God, save us from the senselessness that we so often experience And yet, though we don't understand fully, we will still hold on in faith. So as we transition towards communion, and as you make your way forward, I want you to come to the sides. We have buckets here. And in the buckets we have 
rocks, and the rocks symbolize either our own suffering or the suffering of our world, the brokenness. And I want you to come and to get a rock, and we're going to bring it to the communion table. We're going to bring it symbolically to Jesus because that's what we're called to do. We bring our brokenness to the one who was broken. Together as a church, as the body of Christ, we bear each other's burdens. So we're going to bring the rocks to the table and bring them to Christ. For as Jesus dies on the cross, he takes our pain and suffering in himself. And in return, he offers himself to us. And then as we leave the rocks there, they remain as an Ebenezer, a reminder to us of God's faithfulness in the past, so that we can look ahead to Sunday with expectation. Let us together hope and trust that God's death is not the end of the story. Let us hope beyond the senseless suffering of Friday in expectation for Sunday. So come to the table. Come bearing your burdens. Come bring them to Jesus. And come be nourished by his broken flesh. Come you who are weak in faith. Come receive the one who is your faith. Come you who suffer to the God who suffers with us and for us. Come you who are broken and receive the one who is broken for you. So when you're ready, I want to invite you to come up and then you can take the cup and the bread, and when you're ready at your seat, you can partake it and contemplate of God's faithfulness. And remember that by his wounds, our wounds too are healed. <laughs>